Have you ever had a moment where you were caught? Like, I remember as a kid, um, my mom and I checking out at the grocery store, just so happy to see something eye level, take it, and we walk out. But mom notices, say, hey, we didn't pay for that. And she marches me back in to the general store manager, and I have to apologize for stealing. Have you ever had a moment where you were caught? And maybe it was only one person. Maybe there were no words. Maybe it was just a glance. And you knew in that moment. Maybe it was grandiose and a lot of people knew. How many of you are on social media of some sort? Okay, a lot of us. We go through life posting pictures you know, chronicling our life, and, and there's so many pictures we would post, but if we're honest, there's a lot of pictures we don't want to see the light of day. And, and we hope that it isn't snapped and posted without us knowing, and there's certainly stuff that we hope we never get a picture of and post. And into that backdrop, that kind of setting, that kind of feel, that kind of vibe is the story that John is encountering with us today in John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can go to John chapter 8. If you have your uh, phone, you can open up to the app, go to sermon notes. But we're in this series in the Gospel of John, and it's really trying to help us. Remember, John is real specific. He's providing an incredible, beautiful portrait of Jesus as the Son of God, that he's come to reveal what God is like, and that those who would believe in him may find life, not life that they try to create, but real life that God created and said, I want to invite you into. And so he says all throughout this book, these are these signs, these wonders, these miracles. We've looked at a few stories of that uh, pointing to who Jesus really is. And, and at the end of the book, he even remember we, we read this earlier, but he said, look, now Jesus did many other signs and miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are written, that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might know that he really is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would find life. John chapter one, toward the end, verse 17, in 18, he talks about Jesus being the Son of God. He's not just one who talks about God. He is God. He's God incarnate, God in a bod, came here to, to show, and, and, and he's the revealer of God. What John's really saying is, you want to know what God's really like, look at Jesus. And in John chapter 8, there's this moment where this person is caught. And they're thrust before this crowd. There's an angry mob. And they're thrust before Jesus in that moment. And how does Jesus respond when a person is caught? Because if he's the revealer of God, if he came to reveal, if you want to know what God's really like, look at Jesus. How does he respond in that moment? And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful passages in the Gospel of John. I like the whole book, but this is one of the most beautiful passages. I think it's so poignant and so beautiful. And it's got a challenge for a couple different people here tonight. And so, can we just dive in? 
John chapter 8, verse 1, it says Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, which if you go to Israel, you kind of see the, the temple, you, well, the temple's not there, but you see the old city, and then the Mount of Olives is just across this valley, and you can see, you can walk there. Like, we're talking 10, 15 minutes, a walk, it's, it's short. And so Jesus is there at the Mount of Olives, he kind of, early in the mor- next morning, he makes his way back to the temple that's there, and he begins to teach, and people gather around. He sat down, because that's how rabbis taught I should do that. That's okay. So, like, they sat down to teach, uh, and he's teaching there. And, and what you have to understand is what's going to unfold is like one third church service, one third soap opera, and one third law and order episode. That's well, what's going to break out here in a second. So, here's how it begins to go down. The crowd soon gathered, Jesus is teaching. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. That's key. Put her in front of the crowd. So the crowd is now seeing someone, and then they begin to voice and kind of yell some things. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Pretty tense moment. It's early in the morning. Like this is a church service going on and someone's interrupted and and this person, this woman, is brought before and, and thrust before this crowd and this angry mob that brought her. And can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the tension? that's in this place. They were trying to trap Jesus, verse six, this is what John's saying is going on, into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dirt with his finger. I think that is so fascinating. What would you do? You're preaching. Uh, like you're teaching and so this scene plays out and, and like they're yelling at you to respond what do you say here's what the law says what do you say and he just stoops down and starts writing in the dirt I, I don't know the tension of this moment but can you imagine anyone ever read the book the scarlet letter um, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote it published in 1850 I had to read it in junior high. It's one of the first mass-produced books of the era. It's an American classic. When Hester uh, Prynne conceives of a daughter out of adultery, and she's caught, and she's forced to wear the scarlet A on her clothing to identify her sin, to broadcast that to the people around everywhere she went. That was her punishment. Uh, Maybe you've seen stories in modern day where certain judges, there's a judge that was just outside of the capital of Alabama who uh, sentenced some thieves who had stolen from Walmart and part of their punishment was to stand with the sandwich board for eight hours for several days in a row outside of that Walmart and said, I'm a thief, I stole from Walmart. And they had to stand there as everyone walks by. And so this tension moment is playing out The law says, well, if you go back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you begin to read the law. The law says that the two people who are caught in the act need to be stoned. How convenient that the gentleman is not there. Just how convenient is that? It it takes two to tango. We know that, right? That's reality. That's 
physics, that's biology. And so yet there's only one that's brought before. Why? Because this isn't really about adultery. This is about a trap. Jesus, what do you say? Because what you read in chapter 7, if you go back and read it this week, is that there's this growing tension between the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, and Jesus. And they have tried twice in the last period of time to arrest him. And yet, John just records that his time has not yet come. And what we see often uh, as you read through the gospel accounts, you'll, you'll find what I call Jedi Jesus moments. And it's where Jesus is like, they, like there's people in early on in Matthew where they, he teaches the sermon and they take him to the edge of the cliff to throw him over. Like a picture of that. And it says, Jesus just walked through the crowd. You will not do that today. And walks through the crowd. I mean, it's just a Jedi Jesus moment. And you see it all throughout the gospels. This is one of those moments. And so they're thrusting this story before him. This tension is rising. And he just stoops down and writes in the dirt. Often our mind goes to, what did he write? Right? You ever thought that? I'm looking forward to asking that question in heaven. I'm curious what he wrote. Did he write a Bible verse? Did he start writing the names of the angry mob and maybe one of their sins next to it? We don't know. It's not recorded. John doesn't record it. Why did he stoop down to write in the dirt? I'm not a scholar, but I'll venture a guess. The woman is brought before the crowd. You ever been brought before a group of people and you know their thoughts are judging you? And she's standing. We know that from the text. He was sitting, and then he stoops down to write in the dirt. My hunch is that he was redirecting attention onto himself, maybe restoring a little bit of dignity and value to the one who was caught, to all the tension that was trying to be, you wouldn't help but look and be fixated there until someone does something crazy and off, and, and like that wouldn't normally happen, and, and then your attention is directed there. And so we don't know fully what he wrote, but he begins to write. Where else did God write with his finger? Well, we know he recorded and wrote the law on the tablets for Moses with his finger. We're told that in Exodus. Daniel chapter 5, we know God's finger shows up at this banquet that Belshazzar is throwing that's mocking God and mocking the Jewish religion, and yet he begins to write on the wall, doom is coming. And here, the Son of God is writing in the dirt. And all eyes are fixed on him. And they keep shouting, they keep pushing. This chaotic, pressure-packed moment comes to a halt because the Son of God bends down on a knee and writes in the dirt. And the people who thought they were in charge and thought they were in control of the moment soon realize that they are not in control of this moment. He stands back up. They kept demanding, verse 7, 
They kept demanding an answer. He stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stoops back down again and begins to write in the dirt. The text says that there was moments that went by. We have a phrase in our culture said to put yourself in someone else's shoes, right? You ever heard that? To try to understand what's going on, you got to put yourself in someone else's shoes. For some of you, you can put yourself in the shoes of this woman. It may not have been the same thing. You maybe not were caught in that moment, but you identify with the reality that you've been caught. And it may not be the same adventure that you took, but you understand the moment of coming to where you've made decisions that were less becoming, where you've lied or you've gossiped, you've damaged relationships, you made choices and decisions that not only hurt you, but affected the people around you. And if anyone had taken a picture at that moment, you knew that you were caught. And so you can identify and begin to understand and put yourself in her shoes, and that you have found yourself beginning to maybe even slide from guilt into shame. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I'm wrong. I'm bad. And it's so easy how we can begin to shift from guilt and things that we do wrong to being wrong ourselves. And in those moments, it's like this cloud kind of just comes and hovers over your life. And for some of you, yeah, you know that moment. You know that scenario. You know that pain. And you can identify. And your heart is moved. And maybe you feel stuck there. And if it was just you and Jesus, what would he say to you? What would he whisper? Friend, on your worst day, if you are one who is in Christ, on your worst day, the Father in heaven loves you just the same. Don't allow Satan to turn godly conviction into unholy con condemnation over you. Godly conviction, God's kindness in his conviction lead us to repentance. But it's when condemnation begins to shadow over your life, that's not the voice of God. That's not the hope that he brings us to. Conviction leads us to repentance. His grace is sufficient. But maybe you can put yourself in her shoes and you can log some time there. There's another group in this room. And maybe the shoes you feel most comfortable wearing are the one from the mob. And you wouldn't say it out loud and you wouldn't maybe even acknowledge it to yourself. But you have gone so far in life to pursue godliness and holiness that you've pushed things aside and you've pushed other people aside and said, look, I'm not gonna be brought down. I'm not gonna be detoured. And you begin to wear these shoes and as you continually look out of the world around you, you begin to see the people who are in those other shoes.
and your instant thought is they're going to get theirs. <laughs> Their time's coming. And I'm here to watch it. And you would never admit this out loud because who would do that? But in your heart of hearts, deep within yourself, you understand that you avoid the mess because you want to appear spiritual. You safeguard yourself to pursue holiness. And with that pursuit, you may not have even recognized how the self-righteousness has begun to creep into the corners of your heart and begin to be, find expression in the way that you think, in the way you react, the way you interact with the world around you. And when you look around at others and at this world, you find yourself noticing very quickly, here's the way the things are wrong, and people are wrong. And you find yourself waiting for them to get theirs. And when you look around, you're almost always looking down at people around you. And that's the shoes you feel most comfortable wearing, even though you may struggle to even recognize it. Frederick Bruner writes this, we have eagle eyes for the faults of others, and we are blind as bats to our own. They are never without fault, and we are never without an excuse. Maybe the shoes we're invited to wear are the ones of the one who's drawing in the dirt. Maybe that's the shoes we should wear. Greg Lowry says this, we can be theologically correct and still be an unloving person. Some people mark their Bibles, but their Bibles don't mark them. And it's really easy, maybe for some of you, to pick up a rock. You just carry one around for safekeeping. And here's the reality. To put yourself in someone else's shoes as we identify with the story, the reality is we've all logged time in both. We've all spent time in both. But maybe we should learn from Jesus. Here's the takeaway for today from this story. Jesus' first reaction is compassion, not condemnation. And what if the church got better at that? What if you, what if I, got better at that? His first reaction is not condemnation. That's the mob's first reaction. In fact, they set the whole thing up. The only reason you could bring someone is because you had to have two witnesses, which means you set it up ahead of time and had two people posted outside to watch it record and then drag them, only her, before Jesus. Why? Because they're trying to trap him. And Jesus knows this. But it's revealing to the human heart of which shoes you feel most comfortable around. Jesus responds with love first. He had a challenge for the people that day and a challenge for the people in our day. Put your rock down. You don't need to carry it around. In fact, why are you carrying it around? Put it down. John 8, he continues, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, I love this, beginning with the oldest, isn't that fascinating that John records that? 
It's the oldest who look at Jesus' statement, let you who are without sin be the first to throw the stone, and the oldest go, that's not me. And they walk away. And it's the youngest who maybe strive with a little bit more perfection driven in them, who maybe can lean and get bent towards self-righteousness a little bit faster, who linger a little bit longer, but even they drop their rocks. And Jesus looks at her. Only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again on her level and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. The word Lord there is the same word in Greek for Messiah. Her life's been changed in this moment. It could have been ended in this moment. In fact, the one who has the right to throw a rock, the one who's been drawing in the dirt, who actually doesn't have sin, who has the right to fulfill the law and carry it out, Listen to what he whispers. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, when it's all said and done, when everything fades around us and it's just you and Jesus, and me and Jesus, what will he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and live a better way. There's something better. Choose that. Live in freedom. See, Jesus forgives sin. While we tend to deny our sin or diminish our sin or blame others for our sin, he just simply forgives it. That's why he came. That's what John is trying to get us to see. He's the revealer of God. You don't know what God's like. Look at Jesus. When you're caught, What's he going to say to you? Neither do I condemn you. As one who is saying, he's wooing you to himself. You've got to choose me. And when you choose me, I may not like, in fact, I'm not condoning what you did. He doesn't condone what happens here. But his first reaction is compassion, not condemnation. And one of his followers began to live that way. See, the hypocrisy of this moment is we're going to catch someone in sin and bring them to Jesus. And Jesus, here's the problem. And Jesus says, no, you've got to look in the mirror. The problem is closer than you think. And I'm here to deal with all of this. I'm here to help work through all of this. We need to declare more and more tirelessly the reality of God's forgiving grace. Isn't it remarkable? that the great I am who showed up in Exodus in thunder and lightning is the one in this moment who says through a whisper, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What an amazing statement. What an amazing reality that he introduces into this. What an amazing miracle. See, he could turn water to wine. That's awesome. He can walk on waves. That's awesome. He could feed 5,000. That's awesome. But you want to know what's most awesome? 
It's when the most righteous, great I am looks at you and looks at me and says, neither do I condemn you. That is a miracle. Because we don't do that. I look at the people that hurt me and you look at the people that hurt you. And that's not the first phrase that comes out of our mouth. That's not what's rattling around in our brain, is it? Forgiveness, compassion is not the first reaction that we have, but Jesus, it is. And the challenge for us, the opportunity for us is, will you choose to let him carve a heart into you where your first reaction becomes compassion, not condemnation? Will you examine your own life to say which shoes, whose shoes do you feel most comfortable in? And whose shoes should we most be most comfortable in? Maybe we should wear the shoes of the one who's drawing in the dirt and not the mob and not the woman in this particular scenario. So the invitation for us is to ponder, to think, to, to be challenged, to be rattled a little bit, to understand the reality of God's grace and to have it shape us, to have it change us, to have it move us to be. Here's a question. How does this encounter challenge your attitude about people caught in certain sins? Are we quick for the condemnation side? Or should we be quicker with the compassion side? And so tonight, what we wanna do is kind of seal this moment, invite us into an experience and opportunity for God to do some work in our own hearts. And maybe the question is simply, whose shoes do you most identify with? For some of you here, you identify with hers because it's part of your story. And friend, you need to know, if you wanna know what God's like, look at Jesus. And may you hear the whisper of him, neither do I condemn you that there's life, that you may believe in Jesus, and by believing, you may find life. Not because you earned it. You didn't do anything. He just showed up, and maybe you were brought right before him. And in that moment, he meets you with the whisper you need to hear. He says, I've got you. For some of us, we like the other shoes. We're, we're more like the shoes of the mob. And, and it's very, very easy for us to look around at culture and at the world and at people around us. And we're so quick to pick up a stone. And everything in us. No, no, Jesus, I'm trying to live for you. Okay, that's awesome. Pursue that. But don't let self-righteousness begin to take a root in your own heart where you're so quick to pick up a rock, to throw some shade, to throw some rocks, at people around you. Maybe Jesus' first reaction needs to become more and more of ours. And so tonight, we're gonna do things a little different. Normally we go into communion, but we're gonna go into a song here. And I just want this song to kind of wash over you. I want you to sing if you feel led to do so. I want you to just allow it to, to kind of meet you in this moment. Whose shoes do you most identify with? Whose shoes do you want to wear? And maybe tonight is an opportunity, the next 15 minutes, 
for you and God to have some conversations, to do some business together. And so I want you to lean into worship, into the song, and then I'm gonna come back up and we're gonna set up communion in a special way tonight that invites you to the table and invite you to a moment where God can be at work in your own heart, healing and helping, revealing and redeeming. And so, Father, we ask in this next few moments that you'd meet us, that you'd stir us, that you'd whisper what we need to hear. Oh 
Jesus loves us as she finds you. Whether that's caught, whether that's drowning, whether that's wandering, he's too, his love is too good to leave you there, but he meets you there. For some of you, neither do I condemn you. You have so many voices ringing in your heart, in your head, from all the years of what people have said, what you've told yourself. And you need to hear the voice of a whispering Savior who says, neither do I 
condemn you. I've got a better way. Go and sin no more. For others of you, the whisper is just as gentle, but just as firm. You don't have to carry rocks. Drop it. Just drop it. I've got a better way. I've got a better way. So communion, the rest of the service, here's what we got. We're going to invite you. Take your time. You're done tonight when God is done with you. There's no closing announcements. We're going to linger here. We've created space for you to stay as long as you want. And the invitation is when you're ready. You're going to come up front and down front here in the steps is a rock. And you're going to pick one up. And you're going to have a spiritual exchange in a moment. Where you're going to drop your rock. And you're going to receive communion. Jesus' blood shed for your forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to carry it around anymore. You don't have to be labeled by it. You're free. You can actually live in freedom. And you're dropping your rock so you can live in freedom. You don't have to be the judge. It's above your pay grade. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your job. So drop your rock and then partake in what Jesus did for you. See, what Jesus did for her was neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And a few months later, he'd crawl onto a cross to prove it. And three days later, he'd get up to new life so that people could walk a new life. And he did the same for the people in the mob. You don't have to carry your rock. I'm going to a cross and I'm going to take it all. Jesus' first reaction is compassion. What if his church reflected that? May it be so. Father, you are a compassionate and forgiving God. You cover our shame. You remove our stains. You resolve our guilt through the sacrifice and the relentless love of you, Jesus. We thank you for your unconditional love to us, for your ongoing forgiveness for us. We rest in the salvation, the redemption that you and you alone provide. Help us to be people that drop our rocks of condemnation for others and to point people to you, our amazing Savior. Would you help us to model compassion, the compassion of Jesus in a generation that is so quick to judge and condemn and to write off? So Lord, we're here for you tonight. 
In the time we got left, would you allow your spirit to meet us, stir us, heal us, speak to us, move us? Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening.